Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with Aisha and Dean Sherzai. My husband, Dean, and I are neurologists, scientists, parents, authors, and speakers with a focus on public health and community empowerment. In this podcast, we're going to take a look at the world from a neuroscientific perspective and explore how we can enhance ourselves and our lives in this complex world. We hope you enjoy our conversations with each other, as well as notable healers, artists, thinkers, and leaders around the world. Thanks for joining us on our quest to achieve better brain health and beyond. We're here. We are. Our I, first episode. I'm so glad we're here. We're doing this, uh, finally. Uh, we've had this plan in mind for a long time, and um, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, this is uh, the journey that uh, started 15 years, actually longer than that, but the two of us met about uh, 16 years ago, to be exact. So let's start this conversation by diving deep into the concept of why we're here, the why, expand on that, why we're doing what we're doing on a regular basis, and where are we headed? Um, So we can start talking about the day we met. Yes. Um, Well, the why for us, the personal why, as far as the two of us, and then the why about where we see the incredible potential when it comes to brain and brain health and brain growth. But it starts with our why. We met thousands of miles away. Uh, We're talking about in in Kabul, Afghanistan. Yes. In 2003. That's right. And we were in a party, and you came, sat next to me, and uh, we started a conversation. And it was remarkable that we both had gone there to help um, I had been uh, there for a few months, uh, actually, um, and with the HHS and World Bank, and you had gone there with uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders. It was an incredible time where we were all trying to see how we could help out, and there was so much to do. Correct. And I I recall very clearly uh, coming in and sitting next to you because there was a very heated debate and a conversation about women's rights and public health. And I heard this uh, this highly energetic person speaking about the importance of implementing things like vaccination and um, better health care for women and children. And I think that's where our conversation started about our um, our past and our grandparents. I knew your grandparents, and you knew uh, my grandfather, and they happened to be good friends, and uh, they went through something that you and I can't forget. Yeah, and in fact, that was besides the conversation around us. The the naturally the, the conversation the two of us started on the side in the middle of this entire huge crowd was about our grandparents and their their incredible journeys and their their achievements. And but yet at the end, they both succumb to Alzheimer's and, and dementia. Um, the fact that they had done so much in life. Um, you know, your grandfather was one of the most brilliant human beings I have had, uh, ever heard about. You know, uh, in, uh, Columbia University Medical School surgery, and then Johns Hopkins Public Health, and then he had helped create public health systems and uh, mine the same thing. Yeah, your your grandfather was a pioneer in education, especially girls and women's education. Uh, they were they were amazing people. Yet our conversation went on about how. They lost parts of themselves. I, I, I remember telling you the story of um, my grandfather uh, being at the center of every gathering. And then we had this farm in, in uh, Virginia where we, the whole family gathered for, for um, just gathering. At the time, uh, my uncles were hunters. Well, they were surgeons, and a lot of surgeons think they're hunters. And they're terrible hunters, thank, thankfully. And the two of us, uh, and, and, and the whole family was gathered around my grandfather for that weekend. And uh, he was playing chess, and he was well known for being good at playing chess. And, and we were so young, all the cousins. And we, we remember the moment he forgot how to move the knight. And for those who are chess um, players, um, it's a unique move. It's an L-shaped move, and he forgot how to how to move the knight, and it was a shock to everyone. Uh, 
this giant of a man. And then from there, there we slowly saw him lose parts of himself and, uh, and, and slowly disappear. This giant just, you know, losing himself into his past. Yeah. And the present was going away. Yeah. Uh, and same thing with your grandfather. You told yeah. me a similar story. Yeah, my grandfather was a surgeon and from uh, trained at Columbia University, and he had a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins, so highly educated and a leader in this community, an incredible human being. And um, he was a giant, like you said, you know. We looked up to him, and he was an inspiration for all of his children and grandchildren. And to see this man slowly and gradually succumb to the disease to the points where he forgot how to eat, he forgot how to take care of himself. And I saw my mom and my dad taking care of him and the pain that they went through of seeing this man slowly and gradually losing parts of himself, becoming like a child until he was no more. He couldn't recognize his children and grandchildren. So that pain, we can't forget that pain. We It became a part and parcel of who... Um, we became. And that was the impetus. I mean, they were the impetus for us going into medicine in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then neurology, although, you know, at the time we didn't know that was the, the force behind it, yeah. but, but it was. It was the, uh, the, the, the ultimate force behind why we went into neurology and then neurodegenerative disease, in your case, stroke as well. And, and why we took this very unusual path of healthcare. And, we will talk about this. This is uh, the path we've taken is is very different than the usual uh, medical school residency and then uh, you know uh, seeing patients in clinic and uh, pills or or procedures. We took some risks yes. because we we saw that that the traditional path was not working. So we I, we got married the next year, I think. Yes. And well, I, not I think I know. <laughs> I it, was, that. it was the next year. Yeah. Yes. If I forget that, I'm in trouble. <laughs> At so many levels, being a memory doctor, and 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 then uh, the two of us being married. So I, um, we got married, and then we we started uh, our fellowship and work and research at the UCSD, which was the number one neuroscience place in the country at the time. And and uh, Leon Thal, the giant, uh, the father of uh, of uh, Alzheimer's at he the was, time. He was a chair of neuroscience department. Yeah, not, I mean, research, UCSD. clinical trials, everything. I mean, he's. We have uh, protocols and 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 uh, foundational grants named after him. He um, recruited me, and I went there, and we worked with uh, with him, um, and we did the same thing. You did some amazing work with imaging and fMRIs right and these I was really doing research tools. back then yes yeah. I was uh, uh, I was into research and I uh, I was at the functional MRI the imaging department at UCSD and we were at the cutting edge of you know figuring out what functional MRI was and some of the critical work was done in our lab yeah absolutely and and it was although it was incredibly interesting and sexy because this is the looking at the brain, basically function and and uh, while it's doing a, a process you know thinking or or solving problem or memorizing uh, it, you could actually see its function but there was some emptiness there for us mm -hmm. i mean we weren't seeing any real outcomes uh, right we i was in charge of several cl clinical trials and up to that point we had seen trial after trial after trial fail and it wasn't going anywhere no, it was, um, you know, looking at um, at the mechanism, which which helped to to a great degree, but it was at the mechanism level. And when it came to patient care, um, I remember when um, when I was in research, um, we had one day of clinic that we could attend and see people and patients and their families, and they would come in. And the neurologist, a great neurologist, would examine them, and they would go through the you know the whole slew of tests, blood tests and imaging and neuropsychological testing, and um, you know most of them would end up getting a diagnosis. And I recall um, the visit where the doctor would explain to the family and to the patient that you know the patient had Alzheimer's disease or some other type of dementia. That was it. That so, that that was it. You have Alzheimer's disease. There's no treatment for it. There's nothing we can do. And you know what the worst part was? There was a pamphlet on the table of nursing home 
and you know some caregiver support that were given to the family and you'd see that shock and dismay in people's faces leaving the clinic mm-hmm. and you know setting up an appointment for maybe in six months or, or a year but nothing more than that 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 was hard it was for for both of us I mean for me uh, I, I I could see the face of my grandfather I could see all the other patients and and I think we kind of, sometimes you get caught in this tunnel. You just keep going because that's what the system demands. But the two of us, having done some unusual things previously, stood up, pulled back and said, um, this is not working. I mean, from mouse model to mouse model to mouse model, <laughs> these poor mice, millions of mice being killed, where a lesion is created to represent Alzheimer's. First of all, we don't, if you don't know the whole totality, the complexity across time and space of this disease, how do you think by creating a hole, or genetic or otherwise, you're modeling the disease? And then you throw this uh, drug or nutraceutical or vitamin at this you know, small group of mice. By the way, the life cycle of the mice are very short compared to human beings. And then most of the time it responded compared to controls, and they, they say, oh, there it is, there's another magazine article or another paper published. And, uh, the, you know, the mice were cured by, you know, using um, berries or something of that nature. And none of those studies, dozens and dozens that worked in mice, never translated to humans. So we felt a little bit of frustration, and uh, we decided that uh, we wanted to take an alternate path. I'm so glad that both of us sat down that day and talked about, you know, taking the path less traveled. Yes. Um, it was a big risk. And honestly, I was scared because, um, you know, changing path or taking the path that was unknown almost at that time and not supported. Remember, we used to have conversations with some friends and, and then finally with our supervisor. And I re- recall the day very clearly when we said, yeah, you know, I think we're, we're interested in looking at preventive or prevention models. And we're looking at lifestyle models because we had started reading about um, the Rancho Bernardo study and some other population yes. studies in the area showing that lifestyle matters in cardiovascular disease and it happens to matter for the brain as well. And that triggered this interest in looking at prevention as a new model of therapy for degenerative diseases of the brain. And lo and behold, we started reading about uh, Loma Linda and the concept of blue zones. And we found out that Loma Linda was about, what, 60 miles east? East, exactly. I mean, uh, some of the people there, we have to give them credit. I mean, uh, they would do things that are usually not done, you know. Elizabeth Barrett Connor, who was in charge of the Rancho Bernardo. Oh, she's amazing. She's, she's a, a giant. And then um, uh, Dilip Geste, who was the head of the Stein Aging Institute, we did a review paper together, um, a major comprehensive review on uh, the title was Successful Cognitive Aging, speaking to the fact that you can actually age successfully as, as it pertains to your brain as it relates to your brain. And and so they were a little bit of an impetus. They, we didn't have total resistance. Right. But when we went to others and our mentors and said we wanted to take this path, they basically said this would be career suicide. Right. And uh, there's nothing scarier than that, you know, where you're actually about to make the next leap from fellowship to clinical work where you can go from UCSD, which was the number one place, to anywhere you wanted, basically. You know Harvard or Brigham or uh, 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 or you know Mayo or anywhere else, but you choose to do something unusual. Mm-hmm. And on, on, and of all the places, one that's phenomenal but was not well known, which is Loma Linda. So we decided to go to Loma Linda. And that initial trip, I remember driving there. <laughs> wow, um, the trepidation, the fear, uh, the fact that they told us that you're not going to get any grants. And they were right. There's resistance even now to giving grants, although now we are at the right time and the right place. Correct. And grants meaning research money for uh, money for research from NIH and National Science Foundation and others for this more comprehensive preventive model. And uh, we wanted to find out if people had lived successfully in other places. And uh, uh, God bless Dan. Dan Butner, who had written a book and, and, uh, on Blue Zones and, and, and others. And we looked at the data. And the only one, as you said, 
the only blue zone in in, in in United States was Loma Linda, very close to us. We called, we connected, they asked us to come and we went to Loma Linda to start a clinic and you started your residency. Yes, and I was so excited that they had a preventive medicine residency program and um, I did and a combination of preventive medicine and preventive medicine and neurology. Which is in itself unusual. You know, yes. you, did, you didn't just do neurology, you did preventive medicine and neurology. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to make sure that I understood models of preventive medicine or prevention and how we could marry the two concepts together. There was no such thing as preventive neurology. I think you and I coined that term. We have. have. To be honest. I mean, yes. We coined the preventive neurology term. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and that's exactly what we're doing. Well, what an exciting time it was um, to have gone there and to have been part of the School of Public Health and to look at the data. Um, and uh, tell us about what you saw in the clinic. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, in the clinic, we I had uh, all I saw was dementia patients, and and I had the foresight to collect some data. And the kind of data I collected was nutrition and education level and uh, physical activity level and stress levels and things of that nature. And after five years, I had collected quite a bit of data, nearly three thousand patients with dementia. Now, uh, one thing should be said that ahead of time that whenever people talk about anecdotal data, I, I'm, I say it's important, but let's give it the weight it deserves. One thing that you, you know, the audience will hear from us is that we are a little bit of a sticklers when it comes to data and making sure that we're true to the data and more importantly, true to the weight of data, mm -hmm. meaning don't overstate it, don't understate it, state it appropriately because that's how the game is played. You know, nowadays with all this noise, somebody finds one paper that's done uh, you know, on five people and then that takes the same weight as thousand papers that have shown, you know, facts to the contrary, the right data. So, and, and the whole coconut oil revolution is based on an anecdote of one. Uh, one person, one doctor, right. uh, who gave it to his her her husband, who apparently had Alzheimer's and apparently was cured, but we never had any objective evidence of that. And he passed away. The patient passed away. He yeah. did. He did. Yeah. Yes. So coconut oil has an anecdote of one, but here's our anecdotal data. Although we also did cross sectional and population based and others as well, which came out afterwards. But out of the three thousand, nearly three thousand individuals in an area where 50% of the population is plant-based. Yeah. Vegetarian or vegan. Vegetarians, yeah. Yeah. We're um, talking about the Adventists. The Adventists. Yeah. Um, you would expect just by by the nature of the numbers and there being no other clinic that, that, that was memory center, as well as the distant, uh, the closest other clinic was in USC several, you know, hour and a half away that you expect by, by just that nature, 50% of the dementia patients to be at least of plant-based or uh, variety. And uh, having collected all this data, uh, I looked at the data afterwards after, after five years and, and was expecting an equal number of, as far as nutrition is concerned, and, you know, regular omnivores and uh, uh, plant-based vegans. And, and uh, it was shocking what we saw. Mm -hmm. Once you control for education and everything else, still we had less than 19, well, 19 individuals who are plant-based, be a vegetarian. And of the vegan variety, I couldn't even count any. They weren't, the, the only ones that were vegan, which were staying away from dairy and meat and everything else, were the ones that had some vascular disorders, such as arrhythmias and others, but not related directly to Alzheimer's. And this was shocking to me. Every time I see disproportional numbers like that, I, I, I'm incredulous. We check it out to make sure that there's no other confound. And you're gonna hear that word a lot. Confound meaning other things that might have affected the data, directly or indirectly. And even when correcting for all of that, which is one of the confounds could have been education. The plant-based population might have had higher education, so therefore they had protection from education or they had better social structure. So therefore they, you know, and, 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 and many other confounds, but this number was just disproportionate, even when you controlled for it. So that was the beginning, actually not the beginning, but, but one of the things that just stood out. Mm -hmm. And then we did the other studies as far as within a well-studied population. And then we, you looked at the California teacher study, and then we did multiple reviews, comprehensive reviews, and the data just stood out that lifestyle 
diet and others, and we'll talk in other podcasts as far as all those elements are concerned, has a profound effect on this one disease that was presumed to be genetic in nature. Right. And of course it's going to have an effect on stroke, which is what we already knew has lifestyle elements and others as well. So to us, this was an eye opener. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we'll talk about the fact that this, this the, 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 the brain has an intrinsic capacity beyond other organs to give you protection mm-hmm. because of its resilience, yeah. profound resilience. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad that we're, um, we're at a day and age where we have a lot of amazing diagnostic um, tools and a lot of um, research done in the realm of neuroscience and brain health that tells us um, about the profound capacity of the brain to build resilience and reserve and stave off diseases yes. if it's given the right opportunity. And this is something that was that is usually not taught and not discussed in the medical um, environments. I mean, you, as medical students and as residents, we're very disease focused, which yes. is incredibly important. Um, you know, the different kinds of surgeries and treatments has helped us live longer and uh, more vibrant lives. But that chronic diseases of aging part, the degeneration part, hasn't really been discussed much. And um, the concept of prevention hasn't really been melded into everything else that we're doing. No, no. I mean, the, the system was designed for disease-based. I mean, I, I call the healthcare system sick care system. You call it. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, uh, it is a sick care system, and it's fabulous. Um, I personally benefited from that uh, sick care system when I had herniated disc in my lower back, and they did surgery. For nine months prior to that, I could barely walk. Right. And then... Right after surgery, I was in a tennis tournament. I was doing great. I'd lost poor, badly, but that had nothing to do with the back surgery. It was my game. But, uh, but it was, uh, but so how the sick care system works. Right. But it works for disease, at the point of disease. Right. And the reason we're living up to 78, 80 years of age is because of the incredible successes in the sick care model. And that should continually expand and medications work it will get better and better. They will actually become much more specific. And we'll talk about the problem with the medical system as it is multiple, at the level of the medicine and how it works in the body, especially brain, and our attitudes towards medicine. Mm. Though there are some problems in both of those realms that we'll talk about. But the, 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 the medical system as it is, the sick care system, at, at no point throughout your education are you able to get a glimpse into prevention? Right. I mean, although recently people are saying that, oh, there's some training here and there. I mean, when you look at it, it even the training when it comes to nutrition otherwise, it's at the sick, at the disease model. You go through four years of college, four to five years, depending on how much fun you had in college. <laughs> and then you go through four years of medical school, then four to seven years of residency, maybe even longer, uh, specialized neurosurgery. Then maybe fellowship. I've done two, three fellowships, and you did uh, fellowships, and then maybe some degrees. By the time you're done, you're 17 years into this, mm-hmm. and during that entire time, from very early, I mean, you're a young person when you get into medical school right. uh, or college. The whole time, all you did was look at disease, 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 disease. Never ever were you ever apprised of the fact that how about preventing this? Right, right. Um, and there. And the reason is, one is it's complex. Prevention means a multidimensional approach. And and then the second thing is it's cost. I also think that um, people actually, you know, in, in the medical, in the medical uh, realms and in the medical circles, don't really know that prevention works. I mean, we are now facing diseases like, you know, um, Alzheimer's disease, different types of dementias. And let's not forget, um, you know, uh, psychiatric diseases like depression and uh, suicide. I just heard a a crazy statistics about suicide of how it's increasing, especially in adolescents and young people. And I mean, these are diseases that, you know, a preventive model should be applied earlier and should be monitored for a long time to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. And um, I, I think, especially in the past, everybody was too focused on fixing things. Yes. I think we're, we're trained to be fixers. We're never, we were not trained to look at the bigger spectrum of health in general. It's complexity. 
one of the things that we keep talking about is that I think everything else is management and management is present minded. But future mindedness means, you know, it's not about just management. It's about leadership. It's about being comfortable with change, being comfortable with complexity, Mm -hmm. because change is always a complex model. Change takes into consideration all the things that went into the model and all the things that the model will face. All of that going forward. That's intimidating for a person that's gone through 17 years of here's blood pressure, here's your beta blocker. Here's appendix, here's the knife where it goes in and takes it out. Now, this is not us looking down at that that model. Like I said, these are brilliant, brilliant people. Physicians on the average who get into they're brilliant people. But just that the system just, you know, pushes you through. And then once you're, you know, practicing, you have, you're supposed to, if you're not a surgeon, you're supposed to turn, uh, you know, about, uh, see a patient every 10 to 15 minutes. In that 10 to 15 minutes, how can you look at the complexity? How can you, and, 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 and sadly, there isn't a mechanism to collect the type of data necessary to achieve a complex model. Right. So there are many, many impediments. And we're hoping actually one of the things for this podcast is to have conversations to get us prepared for that kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, for that kind of uh, approach to healthcare, mm-hmm. true healthcare, right? which we say true healthcare is in your homes and your communities. Absolutely. And so, so that, so that was, that was the negative side of, of um, different, you know, health issues that we're um, facing and, um, there, uh, there's a dire need for a new approach for addressing them, um, and um, let's talk about let's talk about the amazing brain. Yes, so we're talking about the brain, and and our we think that most, if not all, of the diseases of the brain are interconnected. This little organ, this three pound organ, which is two percent of body's weight on the average, consumes up to twenty five percent of body's energy and at times up to 50% of its oxygen. That's an energy-hungry organ. And it never stops working. It never does. Even I mean, when we sleep. In fact, it does some of its best work while sleeping. Exactly. So, uh, and, and it's overwhelmed. It's a closed system. The blood-brain barrier, we'll talk about that. That's, it's it's a, a, a remarkable system that isolates the central nervous system from the rest of the body. So it's a closed environment built to protect itself, but within that environment, it's working continuously, and it was supposed to live 30, 40 years. I mean, for people who and, you know, talk about paleo, for example, and they bring models of paleo as a model of health, we didn't live past the age of 30, 40, you know, up to 1940s. Right. It was in 1940s when Fleming and uh, you know, antibiotics and, and better surgeries and, and septic measures actually helped us live longer and longer. But prior to that, you, you reproduced, well, you, you ran away from saber-toothed tigers, bears, tiger, you know, wolves, and then you reproduced, and then you, you died. You passed away um, after reproduction. Uh, not always in that order, but, but you did. <laughs> and and that's, that was the model. But, but now we're living 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years and longer, actually, and we're doing well mm-hmm. because this brain, although overwhelmed, has an incredible redundant and, and resilient system. Right. Now, we talked about the 2% and, uh, and three pounds, but 87 billion neurons. And, that's, and then the glia, the supporting cells, are 10 times more than that, nine to 10 time, times more than that. And, and all these you know, interconnected systems and the wiring between the neurons, the white matter that we call it. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely remarkable. And then each neuron can make a few connections or as many as 30,000 connections. At any time, at any age, that's where the resilience lies. And that doesn't just, let's just take it to the side a little bit. I mean, we're not just going to talk about disease. That's where the beyond comes in. Mm -hmm our ability to bring out the full capacity of the brain, we have not even touched upon that. Right. You know, first of all, let's get rid of a myth. We're gonna get rid of a lot of myths and we're gonna fight a lot of myths. One of the myths is that we only use 10% of our body, uh, of our brain. No, we use 100% 
probably at 1% efficiency. I'm, I'm even using that arbitrarily. But by, by that, I mean we're only on the surface. We're only conscious minimally. There's a lot of automatic processes that take place. In fact, majority of our thinking even is automatic. It's a habitual. It's pattern. Or for those computer geeks, they're macros, <laughs> macro programs that go on and on. Right, and and right. Alex will and Sophie will talk to you guys about this uh, quite a bit there. Um, they were bright. They were smart. They went into computer science instead of neuroscience, our kids. But so on the, to get to the level of thinking, conscious thinking, it, it rarely happens. We have to actively do that in order for that to happen. Um, as much as you would think that political beliefs or, or more complex beliefs are thought-driven, higher thought-driven, cortical-driven, they're not. Majority of them are the same thing, the same macro. You just go in and plug in another macro into the system and it's, it's low energy because the brain wants low energy. It wants to spend very little energy, enough to survive. But in a complex world, there's more requirement. So that's where the problem is. I think it excites me that we have control over these systems and these um, processes of the most important organ in our body. I know that some of the cardiologists and nephrologists might get offended by that. No offense, guys, but um, you know, brain is our where our personality lives, and um, I think if you know from from a real life perspective, if I'm able to get better focus, if I'm able to learn better or be a better person by controlling my emotions and by you know um, putting out my best my best version of what I can be that excites me and people tend to separate that from brain brain tends to be I don't know a little cold the the term brain is a little cold yes but that's what it is you know that's where poetry comes from that's where you feel love and passion that's where your anger and agitation comes from and to know that I have control over those those processes that excites me and I'm so happy that we're able to to understand it better and to um, to, to know the different ways of addressing problems of the brain, whether it's organic brain diseases or psychological and psychiatric problems. Absolutely, I mean this this uh, uh, this uh, this brain has been able to create everything around us. We now walk around with a little phone that has the whole library system of the world in it. I mean, when I tell my kids that when I was in uh, when I when I did research. In Maryland University, I had to go get fish and then get a little number for the book and then go to the sixth floor and get pick the book. And it, it surprises them. By the way, I'm aging myself, but that's, <laughs> that wasn't that far back. No, it's not. Really I mean, when did the iPhone come? I mean, just, just recently. So this brain and its capacity is just remarkable. But we, we, we can actually bring much more to the surface, both as far as quality and quantity, both as far as emotions and love and... And, and experiences and, and, and uh, as well as function. Um, I, w one of the things we, we will be talking about is what is the purpose of meditation and mindfulness and focus and systematic learning and systemic or system-wise processes where you can build quickly to the point where you can actually cogitate and memorize and process much faster, especially at a younger age. Right. We will talk about um, the age. Um, the, we'll, I'll, I'll allude to that a little bit. Cognitive reserve and brain reserve. These are arbitrary terms that have been created. But, but brain reserve speaks to the brain's capacity at a point in childhood where the, the brain actually grows both as far as cellular level is concerned, but as far as its connection is concerned, and thirdly, as far as its structure is concerned. That happens early on. We're talking about it starts actually prenatally in the first nine months uh, intrauterine uh, state. And then, especially in the first year, second year, that growth of the brain is just profound. Now, much of that is genetically driven, but a huge proportion of it is also environmentally driven. Right. We know that if brain, certain uh, children's brains, they don't get certain nutrients, be it you know vitamins or iodine or zinc or something, that will be not it will not be able to achieve the same capacity that it would have otherwise right that's just that component but 
But we also know that if you give it certain environments, that it actually exponentially grows. I've been using the word exponentially too many times. <laughs> a lot. Well, it grows a yes. lot. Yeah. So, and then that infrastructure and that structure that's left behind is brain reserve. Right. And we can engineer that. We can build that. We can build the capacity. You know, the word motivation is used just loosely. Right. Meaningless word. But what if we operationalize it? It starts early. A little bit insight into that. Motivation is when patterns of success are given to the child or adult for that matter with specific directions that they create and then the brain places this emotion next to it. I like it, I like it and that develops a vector and direction. Now the child has complete control over their own motivations. Yeah, Isn't that the most powerful thing instead of just saying, why aren't you motivated? I just don't know, I'm just not motivated today. No, how about every single day having complete control over your motivation and your steps of success. And I think it's it's um, it's exciting to know that you know these small steps of successful behavior that you're talking about that is the impetus towards a better brain and as a result a better life. You know if if people learn the models of a healthy um, behavior or build healthy habits early on in <clears> life, whether it's for eating or exercise or any of these lifestyle factors that result in better health, they live with it for the rest of their lives because those are the critical years when you develop them. And to know how that happens in the brain, you know, the behavior pathways forming in the basal ganglia, which is a part of the brain that, you know, is responsible for, for the development of habit, among many other things, is exciting. Exactly. I mean, in the last 15 to 20 years, we have learned more about the brain than thousands of years before that. Right. I mean, to be honest, up to recently, everything was cardiocentric. You know, you'll find it in your heart. No, you're not going to find it in your heart. The only thing you're going to find is four empty vessels. Sorry, cardiologist. Uh, but what you will find that you're actually alluding to is in your limbic system in your amygdala, in your limbic system, in the your frontal lobe, the emotional of the centers of the brain. And, we'll, and, and we've just begun to learn how that works, how the emotional centers can even be affected, engineered. And, 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 uh, and right now, the way we are actually treating depression, anxiety, ADD, PTSD is arcane. I mean, right. we will we'll be changing that by, by learning how the person's brain emotional system is engineered or, or or what structure is in place at the at this time and where to go in to influence it instead of just throwing a big serotonin drug that just affects all the serotonin in your brain and you say oh I affected depression we were talking about this this morning yes how scary the blunt mechanism is of yes. addressing these psychiatric issues the strong medications that modulate the brain, especially in young people where, you know, they're in the stage of developing their brain and to suppress really important yes. functions in the brain is is scary. It, I mean, it's like chemotherapy. Right. Chemotherapy is, uh, we're in the precipice, we're at the edge of significant changes there. We now have uh, antibodies that target the specific antigen, antigens are these markers on, 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 on cell types or organs or, or cancers. They're specific for that cancer, let's say. And the antibodies go and target that alone and then natural killer cells or some other way, uh, some other system goes in and kills just the cancer cells. Well, up to now, we've used blunt mechanisms where you use a poison and before I go on, they've worked. So I'm not putting it all down. This is the evolution of the system. Right. Um, the, uh, cancers, especially fast-growing cancers like melanomas and, 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 and other cancers, GI cancers and many others, they grow faster than your regular cells. So the poison gets I I ingrained into the cancer faster and kills the cancer cell, but at the same time is killing your cells, especially the ones that are dividing fast, like your, your GI system. Your skin and you know hair. Right. They, they, that's why they suffer. That's why you lose. Uh, so that's the blunt mechanism. And and with cancer, we're getting better and better. For psychiatric and psychological and neurological pro problems, it's the same. We give a blunt drug, for example, for psychosis, meaning that where a person actually is hallucinating and seeing things or hearing things. What we do is give drugs that takes down all the dopamine system, 
I mean, the, the old ones, uh, Haldol and others, they just took the entire dopamine system down. They downregulated, they blocked whatever the system mechanism was of the drug. And it wasn't just for psychosis, right. because it's not the entire brain, but it was for the entire brain. So it had side effects, Parkinsonian side effects, for example, where the person who, who you gave it to had developed side Parkinsonian symptoms. And it was true for other diseases as well. We talked about depression. We talked about, uh, you know, uh, I, we were just reading on um, uh, Tourette's and other diseases where the drugs we use are pretty blunt drugs. Right. They're needed. They're useful. Uh, and and the, the alternative is even worse with the person living with that condition. But we're changing that. And, and that's where we're going now. Right. This, we're learning about the brain a lot more. We understand it significantly more. We are about to map the brain. What does that mean? We're about to understand where each function takes place and how they interact with each other right. throughout the brain. We just did that, or it's not, it's apples and oranges, but we mapped the DNA. Then we are in the process of mapping how the, uh, the, the, the genome translates to proteins throughout the body and, and under different circumstances, epigenetics. We're going to be doing the same thing as far as behavior and outcome right. for the brain, yeah, which is going to be amazing. Let me, just a little insight into some exciting things. Um, scientists in Berkeley and other places have been able to, using multi-pronged EEGs, electroencephalography, which is these, these uh, sensors that sense where the electrical activity of the brain is, right. And artificial intelligence, AI, oh, that word has been overused, but in this case, it's truly AI. Somebody had a thought, the artificial intelligence was able to take that EEG reading and translate it into words. If that doesn't excite you. Amazing. I know some people are going to get scared. I'm not the scared type. I'm the kind that says it's exciting. It's the future. And, and, and we will understand behavior. We will understand language. We will understand disease. Right. And more important than disease, forget about disease. We'll understand how to expand our capacity. Right, right now, we're happy with who we are. We are linear, linear beings, present in the moment, with minimal focus, and attending to one thing only. What if we can expand that profoundly to the point that we can inculcate information at multiple levels at any one point and three-dimensionally built thought amazing that's where we will be going this is not this is not um, uh, mythology this is science fiction science fiction or that. <laughs> this not. is real science it is it is the future it is the future yeah. and it's beautiful because with that what comes is is what we live for the two of us and actually the four of us you myself alex and sophie we talk about this all the time, our right. mission in life, to reduce suffering. Right. And and that's what will come with, with this information. Hopefully not abused, but it will be abused. There's no question. But and the it, general direction is positive. Speaking of abuse, not to, you know, be a you know, turn things towards the negative at this point, but you know, one of the one of the side effects I think, or one of the sequelae of knowing a lot about the brain and in this era where information is widely available for everyone, there's a lot of noise as well. Yes. There are individuals who are um, essentially translating or um, looking at the information or at the evidence from a different lens. And so Unfortunately, the right information is not getting to the public. And I think you and I are quite passionate about that topic. And one of the things that we take pride in is to keep it real, you know, um, even if it doesn't serve our purpose, even if um, if it actually um, ends up being a negative thing for us. Yes. Um, because there are a lot of people who are trying to, you know, make the quick buck or, you know, be on social media and be famous. Get that. One million followers, and you know, uh, we we heard about, you know, the, there are the a whole, lot of examples yeah. of that. Yes, and especially in 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 this field of neurology, where people are suffering, uh, whether it's from Alzheimer's and dementia, whether it's from depression or other brain diseases in general, and um, hopefully we can be the conduit between the world of science, where true data evidence can be transmitted in a real palatable way to the population. Absolutely. <clears throat> There's a lot of noise because of two reasons. One is ignorance. Um, that's okay. That's, that's fine. But there are some nefarious reasons. Right. When a person writes a book about plants and says plants are bad because they have certain chemicals like lectins, 
and then at the same time they have a leptin blocking pill there's only one conclusion you can reach it's especially ridiculous. they've never done research it's ridiculous they're calling themselves researchers but they've never done research and there are many like that uh, i can i can forgive ignorance because we have ignorance we of course. we we attest to that and we say challenge us so we can better ourselves we can change the data we can uh, you know uh, make it more rich right. more complex that's never a problem but it's the nefarious the ones that want to say the things that confirm large population biases when they know that there's a large swath of people that want to hear x y and z and they cr- they contort the science or the data in a way to feed that population this is, doesn't do anybody any justice especially given that we see the suffering the consequences on a daily basis so that's another element that we will uh, uh, work on a lot during these podcasts is trying to um, um, uh, bring the science not just one off paper but the comprehensive science uh, across multiple domains and say that you know the data speaks to this at this point and 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 public health requires that we kind of take things in that direction. So I'm kind of excited about that as well. You're 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 brilliant in that, Aish. Um, as far as data analysis, data problem, you know, uh, uh, understanding the data and then deciphering it and then communicating to the public, I can say that I know that I'm biased. She's my wife, but uh, you're you're. <laughs> You're one of the best I've, I've ever seen. So we're good that's going to be fun. Team. That's going to be fun uh, talking about the science. Absolutely. And um, we, I know we're going to get pushback, and I love that. And by the way, um, we're hoping that there's going to be dissonance in these conversations with some people because we truly believe that in a society that doesn't push the boundaries of comfort, no change takes its takes place all change has taken place when there are uncomfortable conversations civilized but uncomfortable intellectually uncomfortable so we are we are really uh, and you know we we grew up in in communities and people with populations where um silencing was was a norm right different little methods of silencing calling it arrogant calling it loud calling it this and that no this will be a battlefield of ideas we want to share thoughts and exchange thoughts and challenge thoughts because it's only there that change takes place otherwise we're 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 here for no reason we're not here to sell anything we're not here to um uh, and get you know a million followers although that would be nice if you that because nice, that means actually. it's public health we're yeah. making a difference but that mean a lot more people to talk with talk with but we're welcoming challenge and uh, but but you know, um, uh, with data right, and of information. Course. Of course. And and we're hoping that we can make conversations complex at multiple levels, including the public health realm, because we, we're doing some very exciting things right now. Um, and uh, both at the community level, in fact, we have the only brain health initiative in the country at a community level, right. which is very exciting. It is. It and, is. And I'm so, really yeah. excited about, about this multidimensional approach um, that we're bringing. Um, it's uh, it's about time that we got rid of the magic pill concept. It's about yes. time that people understood that you can't live a healthy life with a quick fix approach. It's about time that people accepted the idea that healthcare doesn't start in the clinic or in a hospital. Healthcare is what we do every single day around our dining table, in our kitchen, in our living room, in our communities. Absolutely. And and it's not very simplistic because technology comes into this. This is an exciting realm, you know, time because of that. Technology is going to help us make that connection. Technology is going to help us connect our habits, our behaviors to that which has been proven to work in the communities and in our households. Right. And and that's that's exciting. That's nothing to be scared about. You were talking about pill, the magic pill. We're, for those who are hoping to hear some magic vitamins or nutraceuticals, well, that's another one that we're not very supportive of um, because the data is not very supportive. And we will talk, we'll have a whole session with some world-renowned experts on vitamins and others about what has been shown in the realm of vitamins and nutrients. Um, and uh, that's uh, that's another conversation to be had. So I think 
the next step would be to kind of say the why for us is threefold. One is our personal why. Yeah. Why we went into this. Our story. Our story. And then the why of the, the suffering that we've seen, because we are our brains. In fact, literally, if you, if you, you know, take any body part and replace it, it's fine. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, but if you replace the brain, you've actually replaced the whole body because we are the brain. Yes. There's been too much suffering and there are too many brain diseases that we have not addressed properly at the prevention level. And this is the time. And that's another why. And the third why, a selfish why, a beautiful why, and you're going to hear that in our voice, in our tone, in our energy level, is the excitement of what we have ahead of us. Yes. Or even now, the excitement of the fact that, about the fact that the brain is here. We know it. We know how to fix it. We know how to expand it. That's incredibly exciting. That's, not a, that's a why to the 20th power. Uh, we, we love this field. We love what, what, what it has ahead of it. And we think that this podcast is our, I think it's the highest form of public health that we could do. I agree. It took us a long time to get here to do this. Uh, we really weren't trained for this. Yes. Um, but I'm so happy that we're here and we're able to share this information with everyone and have amazing, exciting guests and speakers and people from all walks of life share their stories and how it relates to brain health. I love the fact that you said the brain is here. The brain is here. Yes. And I think that's a beautiful way to close this first episode of our podcast. Um, and looking forward to doing this again and joining the audience again. And with that, we bid you well. And uh, you can follow us on social media at Team Sharezai. And our website is teamsharezai.com. And we'll talk about our Healthy Minds Initiative uh, during the next episode to tell you about some of the other services that we're doing as far as brain health is concerned. 